This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today is a skilled dramatist, published and produced playwright from Nyack, New York, who is among a small percentage of playwrights that make their living from crafting plays. He is the author of the wildly popular Over the Tavern trilogy, Greetings, and Miracle on South Division Street. Coming up is the play whisperer himself, Tom Dudzik. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery. Curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Play whisperer. I like that. You're getting plays to come out and take the stage. I'm a big fan of original work on the boards. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the very first play that you wrote that was produced? Oh, I was in seventh grade. <laughs> the nun had picked a play to do in front of the class, not a theater, in front of the classroom. And she didn't choose me to be in it. I couldn't believe it. I think she had something against me. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was the, the courtship of Miles Standish. She took a poem and turned it into a play. It was awful. And the kids were doing their homework during it. They didn't care. And I, a couple of days later, I went to her. I said, um, I have my own version of this, of that play. It's kind of funny. Could I do it? <laughs> and she probably didn't want me to, but as a teacher, she had to. She, oh. you know, a kid is creative enough to do that. I got to let him do it. You know, I can't squelch his. So I went up, I made fun of all the lines that were written that she wrote. Yes. Uh, did physical gags. I had my best friends be in the play with me, gave them lines. Things from sitcoms, things from Car 54, Where Are You, anything, just to get laughs. And it did, it did get laughs. I was delighted. Isn't that the drug you need when you're looking for laughs? I mean, once you get the laughs, there's almost no turning back, is there? Oh, yeah. That's what do we do it for? The laughs, the laughs. You know, it really is. <laughs> the other thing you just said that really makes me smile is that she wouldn't let you be in that play. Oh, No, because why I'm smiling is that so many of your works feature a nun, some wink at Catholicism or growing up with religion in your life or going to Catholic school. It's like ever since you've been getting back at her, haven't you? (laughs) I, I have. I have to admit it. Yeah. Yeah. But I started similarly with neighborhood kids. And I, I don't know that I had any intention of writing a play. All we would do is, we would recreate Gilligan's Island or recreate (laughs) Hogan's hero. Like we got to be the characters and then we would on the driveway or in the garage, we would, we would force our parents to watch us do that because maybe we had a little raft. That's why we do Gilligan's Island. But, but I (laughs) I know it was kind of an addicting way to play in the form of doing a presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And get laughs. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's all I wanted. That's, that's the only thing that kept me going to school. Oh, maybe I can maybe I can get laughs if I bring those false chattering teeth that my father brought home from the novelty store. Well, you know what's funny? In uh, I, I want to say third or fourth grade, we had a teacher named Mrs. Jeske. And as you know, the real names are always the funniest. But yeah, she used yeah. to say over and over to us, I'm going to shake you till your shoes fall off. That was like her threat. <laughs> right? And and nobody ever thought anything of it. And then she took this one kid, Mike Hardy, kind of out to the hallway by his ear. And everyone was like, oh, geez. And as soon as he was out of sight, literally outside the door, he kicked his loafers back into the room, which <gasps> we laughed so hard because she didn't do it. He, he oh, wanted his shoes great. to fly out. I know. And I was like, oh, I wish I had the guts. Oh, that was brilliant. Did he go on to be? <laughs> I think he's incarcerated, but <laughs> you never know. Now, let me ask you this. Did you have siblings that you were competing for laughs with at all? No, they didn't have much interest in being funny. It was just me. I was the uh, baby of five. Okay, one sister was was funny. We we had laughs together, but she she would never want to get up in front of uh, mm. the classroom and be funny. No, that was that was me. We have a <laughs> mutual friend named Tony Rotano, and oh, Tony God. was a New York guy that had found himself in Buffalo and in Fredonia and some of these places where where you had started out. But he told me that you're a phenomenal piano player, and that you and he did some burlesque kind of humor. I want you to take me back to the days of the Buffalo paddle boat on the Niagara River. It was called the, the Buffalo Showboat, and it really was a Mississippi riverboat that was turned into a restaurant. And it docked in the Niagara River and sat there, floated there. And I got a job doing theater that the owner said to his brother, create some dinner theater for me here. So the guy came to me, because we were friends from Fredonia, where I went to college, and he ran a, a village bar there, and we became friends. And he said, my brother bought a restaurant up in Buffalo, 60 miles away. You should know that you were born there. We're going there, we're gonna do dinner theater, and you're gonna help me write this show. And I did, and I was all for it. It, it, it was better than the ketchup bottle job that I had, the ketchup, a factory. It was much better than that. You worked at a ketchup factory? Ketchup factory, yeah. Okay, wait, hold on. Now we got to get that. We got to get the skinny on what happens <laughs> in a ketchup factory. To be exact, I worked in the salad dressing division of the ketchup bottling factory. Okay. You were a ketchup wannabe. You aspired to get the ketchup. I did, but then the dinner theater job came along, so I said, well, I can't pass this up. No, it was just a college job. Actually, I had graduated from college, and that was my first job after graduating. And I wanted to stay, I mentioned Fredonia. It's the cutest little village in New York State. It's about 60 miles south of Buffalo. And I was in love with this town, because it was quaint, it was great. So I managed to move, just live there after I graduated, but then I thought, but, that's sort of a conflict. I want to make it big and be famous and, and do theater and who knows what, uh, cartooning. I want to be a world-famous cartoonist. I was into that then. Yeah. How can I do that from tiny little Fredonia? So there was a real conflict. So when this fellow said, we're doing dinner theater in Buffalo, I said, that's it. That's my ticket. Now, I had met Tony Raitano in an amusement park at Lake George, New York, where they had a building called the Opera House, and they did like vaudeville there. And he was like a singing waiter. So I went up there 
to be a piano player uh, during the melodrama. They would have a melodrama, a funny one, and I would play piano, the, oh, the villain and the heroine and everybody else. And I met him there, and we hit it off. And then I got the job in the showboat, doing theater, and in he walked. He was coming to Buffalo. He wanted to get a job there. I said, yes, let's do something. And we we put together this show called The Burlicue Boys. And it was he and I doing a series of vaudeville and burlesque sketches. The Doctor sketch, Who's on First, just a whole bunch of... One skit right after another with some songs. It went over really well, really well. And then the showboat closed. He told me that you guys did reenactment of The Wizard of Oz where he played Dorothy in a wig and you played all the other characters. Yes, yes. That was part of the Burley Q boys. That was the finale. That was the best part. I'm surprised I forgot to tell you that. Oh, it was great. He was Dorothy. And I furiously switching hats, switching wigs, sw- switching props. I became everybody else, the flying monkey, the wizard himself, uh, the Wicked Witch. Oh, I played the Wicked Witch as Ed Sullivan. Right. <laughs> that Ed Sullivan would be the Wicked Witch, would play the Wicked Witch. And so, <laughs> well, you know, who killed my sister? <laughs> But I noticed some Ed Sullivan in Over the Tavern, which was a play that you, one of your very first big hits as a play. And the kid, the young kid in that is doing Ed Sullivan, isn't he, in the... At school, he does it on the front steps of the school just to make his friends laugh. He he imitates the uh, impressionists from TV. That he wants to be that when he grows up. He gets in a lot of trouble for being such a show off, and but that's his goal. Yeah, and some of this is uh, autobiographical in a way. Oh yeah, geez. Over the tavern is it's about this twelve year old named Rudy, and it's and it's me. I couldn't help it. I said, hey, I've got permission to do this. I've always I always felt that there was that I should write down these stories that I that I always make my friends laugh with about the nuns and being a, being the class clown and I should write them down but something said no don't you be a good boy don't show off and brag like that <laughs> you just don't do that and it wasn't until my, I was an adult I was married I remember walking home from work my job at a bank and thinking I've got to. I've got to put this stuff down on paper. This has to be a play. And it was over the tavern. And wow. it was about, about this family, uh, four kids, two parents, and a nun. And, and your dad was a tavern owner. Big Joe Dudzik had a tavern? Big Joe Dudzik. He was 6'11". <laughs> wow. And wh- what was the name of the of the tavern he ran? You won't believe it. Big Joe's. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Big Joe Dudzik. He was a, in Buffalo, he was a basketball star for oh, Canisius, I bet. Canisius College. Oh, yeah, he was back in the 30s when no one was 6'11". And did you indeed live above the tavern, or is that part of it fabricated? No, no, I lived over the tavern. Had a, a father who was crabby, mother who loved to laugh and loved to have me make her laugh, and nuns who were just murder. Right, right. I always think about learning to write cursive from nuns where it was a militant operation. <laughs> you joke in your material about fighting off the ruler that's going to hit you in the knuckles. Yeah. But it was true back then. They would they would wrap the edge of that desk and they would walk around with it behind their back like they were an SS agent. Yeah, yeah. I remember having my ears pulled terribly because I got 
the numbers on a clock wrong. We were drawing a clock, learning how to tell time. And I did it wrong. And ow, my ears. Oh, yeah. Always <laughs> with the ruler. The sixth grade nun was terrible in it. Nothing like education via corporal punishment. Yep. You, you folks listening out there, if you hear stories from old people about what the nuns were like, it's all true. Every word's true. Yeah. Now students can sue their teacher. Everything's, <laughs> everything's reversed. You, in our age, you used to be able to take a grenade to show and tell, but now you can't even get into school with a fork and knife. <laughs> I don't want to live anymore in today's world. Well, who does, really? <laughs> I mean, we're all just staying afloat at this point. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about playwriting for a minute because you are uh, an experienced playwright. I don't know how many total works you have published. Is it in the eight or nine range? I, I eight, or, eight or nine range, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And always working on something. I know you have a new musical version of the Over the Tavern for Christmas. And it's called, can you guess? I'm going to take a stab at it. Christmas over the tavern? Oh my God, he's like psychic. Yes, yes, that's it. Christmas <laughs> over the tavern. It's the same, the same uh, cast of characters from Over the Tavern. The, Rudy, the kid, and the rest of the family, and the nun, and they're singing, and it's Christmas time. So it's Christmas over the tavern. It's a musical. What is Rudy's last name? The character. Pazinski. Okay, so here's what I noticed in perusing some of your plays over the last couple of days. There's a lot of Polish names and oh, yeah. last names with Z's in them. Do all of your plays have a character with a Z in the last name? I'm just sticking to what was. In my neighborhood, there was, it was a big Polish population in my neighborhood. And uh, sure, Pazinski's and Kaczynski and Nowaki and Szepaniak and uh, Sawinski. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, well, my name's Hazel. It's got a Z in it. Yours is Dudzik. It's got a Z in it. So I don't know why, but as I was reading it, I was like, okay, I don't know if this is like a Hitchcock appearance. There's a signature move in your work that you include those names, but it, it makes sense. It grew, you grew up in a, a neighborhood that had an ethnic bent. And so, yeah, yeah you're telling it from a truthful standpoint, which for the most part, all of the work that you do is a little bit about the way you see the world. Oh, Yeah. Really, to take a name from the old neighborhood and stick it in a play, it's just fun. And I like it because it's truth. I'm not making up anything goofy just to get a laugh. Right. I'm just telling the way it is, and luckily it gets a laugh. I find in stand-up comedy that when I use the real names, there's something about the way you deliver it that's truthful, too. If you talk about the bully or you talk about the girl you like, there's a lilt in your voice because all of the stuff that comes with it comes through their name. Yeah. Versus the idea if you randomly pick a name out of the phone book. And sometimes if you're writing something that needs to be slightly changed, combining names, taking a real last name and giving it a new first name works similarly. But I, I find that that is a great joy for me to read those character names over and over. <laughs> I had a crush on a girl named Lee Olmstead, like in second or third grade. And she never knew who I was really, but you know, she was like the blonde, perfect teeth. Her dad was a dentist and Valentine's Day would come around. And I was like, I'm going to give Lee Olmstead a Valentine. And in order to do that, you had to give them to everybody in class, which meant she didn't even notice you gave her one because she had 40 Valentines. I'd say 30 years later, I was in Denver, Colorado, and a bunch of kids from my elementary school, now adults, came to the show and somebody said, oh, Lee Olmstead's coming. And all I could envision was the most beautiful grown-up woman I could, and when she arrived, she looked like a really good-looking 
second or third grader. Like she hadn't changed that much pigtails. And it was so, sure. so funny that you had, I had built up this image. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about the name Butchie Krathaus? Does that sound like <laughs> the neighborhood bully? Well, yeah. What a perfect name. Butchie Krathaus. We become our names in some ways, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hope he's not out there listening. He's going to come gunning for me. Right. Well, that's my fear is that now Lee Olmstead is going to want to sue me for saying she looked like a grown-up <laughs> second grade. But hopefully I, I say it with affection. When you went to college in Fredonia, were you studying writing? No, not at all. But I did study music. See, I started taking piano lessons when I was five. We had a piano down in the bar. I would go down there and tinker on it. And my father finally said, get that thing upstairs. He hired some of the bar flies to drag it upstairs and they got the piano up there. I shared it with my mother's sewing machine in this tiny little room off the hall. I was at it all the time. And my mother said, would you like to take lessons? And I said, yeah. I thought I would go take piano lessons and come home and be able to play piano that day. Oh, <laughs> and it, and it didn't didn't work out that way. It turns out I had to stay at it and practice every day, which I hated practicing. But this is telling you more than you wanted to know about Fredonia and me and piano. But I did take piano and that saved me so much trouble. It kept me out of the army because I was I was able to get into college and get a, a college deferment because I could play piano. My grades oh. were terrible, but I could play piano when I got into music school. A community college first in Syracuse for piano and then uh, transferred from there to Fredonia, which was a great New York State music division. I have been to Fredonia. There's a Fredonia Opera House or or theater there. You perform there? I have performed there. It's a beautiful space. Oh, it's wonderful. I've been there, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I've just, the whole area up there was really gorgeous. We go all around the country, but you remember the pockets. Typically... I remember the best and the worst. The things in the middle, maybe I can remember a good meal in the town, but I remember the best tech crews and the worst tech crews. And Tony Rotano, whose name we have mentioned now, has been a production manager for many of my plays on the road. Oh, oh. And so we've stayed in touch over the years. But he, he had a really interesting beginning to his career. Among his achievements is he played one of the, the seatbelt crash test dummies yeah. in those PSA commercials that you that go through the glass windows and stuff. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So that was always a kind of a little bragging right we would put in the program for yeah. him. We did a lot of touring, and I love the Jewel Box theaters. They're the very places that your plays are performing. I see posters, and your name has popped up a number of times. I've always just sort of kept track because there's a small percentage of of playwrights that really make a full living from it. There's some extraordinary playwrights who write great plays and they, they have to have other work or they're hopeful that the play eventually gets optioned to become something else. But there are very few Neil Simons in the world that make really a big pile of money from playwriting. Yeah, to, to be honest, I don't make a big pile of money. and <laughs> Neither do I, so to be fair. Luckily, my wife helps support us and... These past three years have not been friendly to playwrights with the pandemic. So I've got plays ready to go. I'm shopping them around now. There are a number of writers who wrote plays who then moved West to become sitcom writers or to eventually write film because playwriting is, it's a noble art. 
but it is awful hard to make a lot of money at. There are very few wickeds or musicals or plays that move into that upper echelon of really playing all over the country and the world for that matter. You know, what's so important is making connections with people who can help you. When I came up with Over the Tavern, I forgot even how I met him, but he was the director. I guess my agent hooked me up with him. He just happened to be extremely influential around the country. He knew he had worked in so many theaters so that when Over the Tavern opened in Buffalo and became this phenomena, he took it to other theaters and said, you got to do this play. And he said that to enough theaters that so many theaters were doing this play. And that's what got me well known around the country that they would then listen to me when I came up with another play, you know, oh, you're the one who wrote that? Yeah, let's let's give it a read. So it was because of that one director, Terry Lemude. I guess he's still working in, in New York. Um, but sometimes it is that one person. Sometimes yeah, yeah. it is the one venue or the one creative partner or that one agent and people with quality work that are not being discovered. Yeah. Somewhere along the line, we had an exchange and you sent me a really funny piece called Don't Talk to the Actors. <laughs> it was really funny, but it was different. It wasn't part of the Over the Tavern trilogy. No, I, got, I had gotten broken away from that and I wrote Don't Talk to the Actors. Yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about the premise uh, of Don't Talk to the Actors. Well, the premise is a young playwright from Buffalo. <laughs> His play is picked up by a New York producer He's like the last of the one-man producers. And he goes to Buffalo and he's caught in a snowstorm. This is all backstory. He's caught in a snowstorm and blizzard in Buffalo. And he has to go to this little theater just to ease the boredom of being stuck in this blizzard. And he loves this play that he sees by this local playwright. And he options it. Well, the whole play Don't Talk to the Actors starts in a rehearsal room in the 42nd Street area. And in come the actors one at a time. We meet them. There's the stage director, the stage manager, and we meet the playwright and his fiance and the stars of the show. And it's just the different personalities, how they interact. And it's very, very funny. And it's, and it's based on my experience putting up my first play, Greetings. Greetings was a Christmas show, am I right? It was. It was a Christmas play. It was my first, I call it my first good play. It Didn't it star Darren McGavin? Yes, it did. Darren McGavin. Let me ask you about Greetings, though, because this is another Christmas play. Yeah. You got a thing for Christmas. What is it about that holiday that, that sparks you? All the sentiment it brings up. It brings it right up to the surface. All that feeling, it's all, it's all, it's all there. At the time that I wrote it, I had a Jewish girlfriend. And I thought, wouldn't that be a riot if I brought home my Jewish girlfriend to meet my Catholic parents, who I don't know if they ever met a Jew. <laughs> well, I was meeting them left and right there in New York. One turned into my girlfriend, and I wrote something that was more of a skit. But it had a centerpiece of conflict because of the Jewish atheist fiancé yeah. having to meet the Catholic parents on Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah, that was a big conflict. And also... I have a brother, I had a brother, he's passed away now, and he, he had Down syndrome. I thought, oh my God, what if I put him in the play? Well, okay, what's, what's special about that? Well, just that in itself is kind of special. Well, then I had the idea, personally, I was into this thing about New Age 
channeling. Do you know what I mean when I say channeling? I've heard of it, yeah. Okay, it's when you allow, this never happened to me, but someone would allow a spiritual entity to not take over your body, but to communicate through using your body to, right. to speak. speak. Speaking from beyond to bring messages to, to the living. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what if the the kid who can't speak, all, all he says is, oh boy, and wow. Those are about the only things he says. Uh, what if it's well established that that's all he says and the audience knows because we set it up. And then suddenly he starts to speak because he's channeling someone. <laughs> and the audience knows, well, they're not pulling a gag. Nobody's a ventriloquist. This is really happening in, in the story. This is really happening to the family. My God, the kid is talking. So we got that scene and the, the conflict of the Jewish atheist girl as the girlfriend who's bringing home on Christmas Eve to meet the folks. So that turned into a barrel of laughs and some moving, moving uh, moments in it. And we read it in, in a room in New York with folding chairs. And my agent got some producers to come and take a look at it. And one of them was the George Street Playhouse in New Jersey. Which is quite a reputable theater. Yeah, yeah. And they came and they liked it. And they said they wanted to do it. Oh, my God. And Darren McGavin was not connected with it at that point. It was local actors, a lot of Broadway people in it. That was the beginning of that. And then when it moved to Off-Broadway, then they went big time and they hired Darren McGavin. Well, it is funny when, when you write a play, you are looking for scenes, moments that you can build towards. Because in playwriting, a lot of times you're laying a certain amount of pipe. You talked about establishing the challenged character and then that being the one to speak. That's a really nice device to be able to use. And I know there've been a few times I've thought about the device and not totally had the play to put it in. <laughs> there were characters once where because of baby monitors being the boom to check on your child, I thought well, that's a great device to hear characters from the other room. A couple that seems to be in sync at the family table, go to change the baby and have a giant argument over the baby monitor and talk trash about everybody downstairs. <laughs> And then everybody knows, except they don't know they know when they come back. So that's that moment you want, that tension you want, where the audience knows, but the characters don't all know what's about to unfold. Sure, yeah. In a Christmas show that I had called Dakota Chrome Christmas, I like the notion of a canary or a bird that could repeat things. And it was a TV studio, and they had this little bird in the cage, and it would whistle and it would do things, but they would talk to it. And it would repeat some things. But the woman's husband had passed away, and I was saving a phrase that he had taught the bird for the bird to speak in his voice back to her. I had set the play aside to try to get the mechanics of this gag to work. And I was determined to, <laughs> this was a big mistake. I was determined to have a real bird in the cage and just put a little speaker in there and then have the recorded lines come from the speaker, which would then startle the bird, which would move around. That was what I thought was going to happen. Well, the first weeks of rehearsal, the theater's like, we're feeding this bird. We're cleaning the cage. This is a pain in the butt. Yeah. If we just put a fake bird on a swing and pull a little piece of monofilament and it took over our problem solving <laughs> was to try to get this bird to be a part of the play as a character. Oh, yeah. 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 So that's sometimes when you leave a playwright in a room by themselves, it can be dangerous too. 
You want to hear coincidence? Yeah. And my very, very first play that was done in New York was a one act. There was a talking bird in it. And how did you get it to work? It was a fake bird just sitting there on a swing. We didn't <laughs> focus on that, but we had a little tiny speaker in the cage and okay. somebody, off, somebody off stage did the... Uh, and what was funny is there was a character that was a real jerk that nobody liked, except he was the boyfriend of the girl in it. While he's not on stage, the girl's trying to get the bird to talk. She said, uh, say, it's Leonard. It's Leonard. That's the guy's name. Right. It's Leonard. And then he... He won't, t- he won't say it. Something happens that makes the girl a little nauseous at the, at the time she yells, I'm going to puke. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to puke. And so later on, you know, 10 minutes later, Leonard's in the room and the parrot goes, the bird goes, it's Leonard. I'm going to puke. <laughs> and, gets bi- and gets a big laugh from the Classic audience. comedy. How perfect. Go. But you know what? Let's talk about humor and how it works because that is a setup that requires a punchline and then is allowed to have a callback. Yeah. So when you're writing characters and you're writing a play, in addition to that story structure, you are in in the humor business, you're shooting for building up so that act two and act three, you're doing the comedy is growing because they're being educated from the first moment. Sometimes the opening sequences are less funny. You've got some incidental laughs, but you're having to, you know, it's an exposition express to get to the bigger jokes later on. Yeah. And what works for me, I've been blessed. I sit down, I take my time and it, it takes a lot of work just thinking and thinking. But luckily, I've been blessed with this sense of humor that the things I, that come out of my brain it just happen to be funny. Thank God I, it works that way. As I'm writing the outline of the story... And I progress and I progress. And then, because I'm in charge, I'm writing it, I can get towards the end and I can think, wouldn't it be hilarious if this happened right here? What can I go back and set it up with? Oh, it'd be even funnier if, if in the second scene this happens. And then, oh my God, what if in the first scene this happens? And then that thing that happens way at the end of the play, then it's triple hilarious. You can work all those things out because you've got time. Yeah, but building it backwards. Absolutely building it backwards, yeah. Of course, there's times when you have to go forward because it's just the the nature of, of the story, but then you start building it backwards. Do you find that in your rewriting that sometimes you'll find a unnecessary character or things where you end up cutting sequences because you realize we can just skip that scene and move forward or... Yeah, yeah. I just cut a character recently, a play I'm very proud of that has been read by hardly anyone. It had six characters, and I thought, you know, that's a lot of characters. When regional theaters are very cost-conscious. So, ooh, I wonder if this would do better if I... Could I reduce this to five characters? And I, I looked closely at one of the characters, and sure enough, we could let them go. The story was still told. They came in as a team. One is an actor and one's the head of the, the studio. It turns out we, the actor was really the important one. This, this head of the studio wasn't all that important. Did a lot of talking and he had a, definitely had a definite point of view. But really what we needed to hear was the actor and the story revolved, about, revolved around him. So we let the producer go. You didn't miss him at all. 
that's the mature thing that I would guess I would encourage if anybody's writing a play for touring, for regional, that these are business logistics. You do have to think that for everybody, they have to pay the person. If it's an equity, they have to pay their health and pension and it adds up. And then that also means housing and that means travel. So it is about being economical and writing an epic play with 20 people in it is almost undoable these days, unless you're just doing it at your community theater one time in your town. But as much as that's giving a lot of people a role to play, that's movie making is made of many characters. And similarly, how much scenic, what device, most of the plays you're talking about and similar to mine are really one set plays with an occasional little episodic set piece will come in or something else to change the environment. Yeah. Um, because you have to think of it that way. You don't have the luxury of what television and film do, which is go to another location and make something exotic. It's a little easier now with projection to create a new location without a lot of drama, but it's hard to write to that. Yeah, it is. And I look at what's being done on Broadway and I see these gigantic casts and I think, how is this going to move? Well, they will move to other theaters in big cities that have a huge theater. That's what they do. But the regionals, I don't know. I saw Rocky, the musical on Broadway, Mm -hmm. which was written by Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty, who have a long track record of writing great musicals. And they had written it initially for a run in Germany. But in the final 15 or 20 minutes of this show, the scenic elements that were such a phenom were the fact that the ring, the boxing ring came, I don't know if it was hydraulics, but it came out right into the middle of the audience so that the audience then was encircling the fight, which was done in slow motion as strobe lights. And there was, I mean, it was such a big moving thing that I thought, oh, there's no way this can be done anywhere. Broadway does stagecraft like no one. It's a, it's the great American Broadway show that we're known for. That's a great export we have. But they always have to figure out what to do and scale it down to scenic elements and backdrops and projection to get it on the road if they're mm-hmm. going to make money on it. Yeah. You don't have that kind of scenic issues. I I don't make problems for myself by doing that, no. Because <laughs> I know it's going to come back and bite me in the rear end later. Yeah. Even in sitcom land, I have to tell you, when I wrote on sitcoms, we often knew we could have no more than four sets. And if we already had a living room set and we already had a the workplace, it's like, well, what's the swing set going to be this this week? Are we going to have a doctor's office? Are we going to have a bar? What? Whatever it is, there's a limited budget for where you can take those people and they have to be able to do it. You can occasionally get a scene in a car or something that you shoot when the audience isn't there, but mostly you're dealing with three or four locations and you got to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been commissioned to write a play or has everything been on your own decision? A couple of times I was commissioned, uh, the name of the theater that did Over the Tavern the first time Studio Arena in Buffalo, New York. It, it was such a hit. They ran a three three years in a row, by the way. That's great. <laughs> they commissioned me to write another one. I chuckled and said, yeah, we'll, we'll write uh, Over the Tavern, the sequel. <laughs> and sure enough, I went back and I thought, you know what? Th- yeah, this could 
move move the whole family ahead 10 years. What's going on then? The Vietnam War is going on then. And and so I did. I wrote I wrote a sequel. But that was commissioned. That was lovely. That was called King of the Moon. King of the Moon, yeah. It happened in the backyard of the tavern building. I did read that you were able to do an adaptation of Over the Tavern for Irish audiences. So it had a stint in Ireland, in Cork, Ireland. So I'm fascinated by that. So I do understand you have to not so much translate it into Irish, but you do have to make change this from a Polish family to an Irish family and maybe fit the colloquial things. So was that fun or was it challenging or? Challenging and fun. The woman, I don't remember how she heard about Over the Tavern, but she was from Cork City, Ireland. She ran a theater. She was the artistic director. Not a huge theater, but a professional theater. And she contacted me. She said, I'm so interested in your play Over the Tavern. I would love to do it. If it were an Irish play, and I said, geez, come on, <laughs> just do the play, I'm thinking. Just do, we don't change your plays when they come over here. We just do them as an Irish play. We don't write, we don't look for the beauty queen of Buffalo. Right. <laughs> but we went back and forth a little bit. And finally she said, you just have no idea how Irish your play is. I thought, oh, well, then that intrigued me a little. And so we talked about how we could do it. And it was simply changing the location to Cork City, Ireland, put it in Pat's uh, pub, Pat O'Malley's pub. And she helped me with making them sound Irish, changing the words, the expressions, the things they would say. But it was the same story. Right there, you said something that I think is really bright, which is, you collaborated with what I what you would call a local translator, even if it's what I more of a personalization of the play than a full customizing rewrite. Yeah, it worked really well. I went over there to see it, and it really did. Oh, and we had a talk back with the audience, and they <laughs> and she was right about it being your play is so Irish. The main question from the audience when we were doing the talk back was. It started in America. Would they even get it over there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a compliment. That is a high compliment. Yeah. My flagship brand was a show called The Wonder Bread Years. and Oh, yes, I saw that and loved it. In in Nyack at the Penguin Rep? Whatever name of the town that is, yeah. It's a great equity theater that puts on world-class theater, but outside of New York a little bit. And their staff, everyone's top-notch theater Mm -hmm. Makers, Joe Brancato invited me there. What's funny about it is that I didn't change it to the pumpernickel years and go somewhere. But when some of these shows would sit down somewhere, if it sat in Pittsburgh or in Milwaukee, I would change references that, although it's not another country, the discussion of butter versus oleo that might happen at the Wisconsin-Illinois border or custard versus ice cream It is very interesting how just a few simple phrases make people feel like it's homespun and they respond differently as if it's written in their native tongue. Yeah. Over the pub, the one over the tavern changed to uh, over the pub in Ireland. They had me change the foods that they would be crazy about. Instead of in in Buffalo, it'd be a fish fry on Friday. That's big for Catholics. (laughs) She she changed it to something with mushy peas. 
And that made no sense to me, but I believe you. If you guys like mushy peas, well, I'll put it in there. <laughs> you do have to trust them. In my traveling to London, which speaks English, I was doing some television and a guy said to me, don't say sweater. They're not going to know what you mean. Say jumper. <laughs> now, the funny thing is when you're an American guy and you've got an American accent and you say jumper and they know you don't know what you're talking about. It's kind of a different form of suicide. <laughs> They're like, oh, do you think you're one of us now? So, yeah. But they told me to say yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I know. It was like I took the lift instead of the elevator or whatever. And I was like, okay, <laughs> some of this I can get on. And others, I think you're pulling a prank on me. Yeah, know? yeah. Let's talk just briefly about your Catholic upbringing. Not so much at getting back at the nuns, but are you still a practicing or have you perfected your... Catholicism or <laughs> yeah, I don't have to practice anymore <laughs> <laughs> because you have other plays. You have a play called hail Mary. And I, I, I guess I wonder how much of it is sort of irreverence towards the upbringing and how much of it is just a part of your personal culture. Well, hail Mary pokes fun at, at religion. It really does. But no, I, I stopped being a Catholic years ago, back in college. You graduated from it. That, that's it. Yes. So I just use it now as a as a fun reference. I've gone into other areas spiritually. All right. So you still have some faith or some oh, yeah. uh, sense of a greater being. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All that's all that good stuff. I do better not being part of an organization. Now that's almost a Groucho quote. Didn't he say <laughs> that he didn't trust any organization that would have him as a member? Have him as a member, yeah. <laughs> Which brings me to the fact that I heard that you have an affection for Groucho. Oh, yeah, I did. I did a lot of Groucho in the Burley Q Boys, our two-man show. The first time I got on stage was doing Groucho. It was the very first time in college that I was allowed to be in a play, and uh, it was as Groucho. I was thrilled. Oh, no, I was a huge fan of his. If I could have done a one-man Groucho show, I would have. And that's faded. It served its purpose, and it was a lot of fun, but it moved on. Well, you did mention earlier in this conversation about wanting to maybe be a cartoonist, and I did see your cartoon of Comedy's Last Supper, which included oh. Groucho and W.C. Fields and the Three Stooges. It's a great rendering. That is your work that's... Available online if they put in Comedy Last Supper, they that's something they can purchase to hang on their wall. But it's a it's a really fun rendering of the Last Supper with all the great comics. Yeah, I, I'm very fond of that piece. It was I, I did it before I just before I moved to New York permanently. I said goodbye to local dinner theater in Buffalo. I'm going to try spread my wings, try the bright lights of New York, and I sort of brought that at that piece of artwork that I did is I thought I would live off that for a while. I thought I would sell it and somebody would manage it and it would, <laughs> none of that happened. However, I kept it. Well, it's still available today. That website is tomdudzik.com, D-U-D-Z-I-C-K.com, where you can find out so much more about all of his various plays. There's great quotes and reviews and I'm intrigued by your work, and I know that you're continuing to put work out, which, from my philosophy, the more good original plays and funny stuff, the more pie for everyone. Because those same theaters look for my plays, look for our peers' plays, as opposed to everything being a recycled or 
a repurposed version of something we've seen before. And it is a high risk. So I appreciate you're walking that tightrope at the same time as me and, uh, and not falling. So Tom, thank you for sharing your insights and inspirations today. Oh, you're so welcome. This was fun. Thank you. Oh, It's great fun. We'll meet you over the tavern for some piano and good beer and a fish fry. Time for some mushy peas right after (laughs) this message. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just too dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creature.